What is constructor theory, and how is it different now than in its original formulation by David Deutsch? Uh, so constructor theory is a um, new way of uh, formulating uh, the laws of physics, and um, this was uh, originally proposed by David, um, I think, back in twenty around about 2011, something like that, um, as a new mode of explanation. So uh, he, he wrote a paper that had um, a very strong philosophical component, which laid the foundations of, of the theory in the form of a program, in a sense. And the key idea there was to um, modify the way we formulate laws of physics and so the fundamental laws of physics. So instead of using things like um, uh, dynamical equations, so laws of motion and initial conditions, which is what most uh, fundamental theories do, um, switch to a different mode where the basic fundamental statements are constraints about which transformations can be performed and which uh, transformations cannot be performed and why. So uh, what is possible and what is impossible. And then consider dynamics uh, and uh, initial conditions as kind of emergent consequences of these principles. So it's a really like a switch of um, perspective into thinking what is, what is the fundamental element in a physical theory. And this was there, I think that's the key idea. And David was really inspired uh, to, to do this by the quantum theory of computation which is a theory that he himself pioneered in the 80s uh, when he, with other people, proposed the idea of a universal quantum computer. Um, there, I think it's really important to, uh, in that theory, to think of what can be performed by a universal Turing machine and what cannot be performed by it under given laws of physics. So in the case of classical physics, you have a classical universal Turing machine, that can do certain things and not others. And then you have a quantum universal Turing machine, which uses the laws of quantum theory, not classical physics. And there you have new different modes of computation available. And um, this was a key insight in, in developing this idea of the universal quantum computer. And constructor theory, uh, one way to see it, and this, is, this was already there in David's paper, um, is to think of it as a theory of a more general programmable machine that is even more general than a universal computer. Mm -hmm. And this is a universal constructor. So a constructor is, a, is a, an entity that can be programmed to perform a number of tasks that are not necessarily computations. So you can think of a um, heat engine as a constructor, if you like, um, a 3D printer is a constructor, Anything that can be programmed to perform a given physical transformation, you can think of it as a programmable constructor. Uh, it just it has to have this property of being able to do the transformation once and then keep its ability to do it again. So that's the key feature of the constructor, which um, makes it different from a, a different system that can just simply perform the transformation once and then maybe uh -huh. be destroyed or whatever. And a universal constructor is the most general programmable machine that we can think of. And this is what uh, the physicist John von Neumann uh, thought of when he was um, imagining the, the ultimate, uh, you know, the most general programmable machine that could be built by, by, by humans in a sense. And constructor theory 
can be thought of as a way to generalize the quantum theory of computation to uh, cover these machines that are more general than computers. And this is somehow a completion of what phenomena had in mind, because phenomena had this idea of the universal constructor, but then never really delivered the physical theory of these machines. Whereas we are hoping with constructor theory that, that we will be able to deliver a, a theory of these machines. Uh, at the same time, also deepening our understanding of physical theories, because when you uh, understand what are the fundamental limits of the universal constructor, so what is it that it can or cannot perform, you've also expressed what are the um, possible and impossible tasks according to the most fundamental laws of physics. So in a sense, studying the universal constructor and studying what is possible and impossible um, under the laws of physics is the same. And this is a key insight in David's paper. There are lots of other things in that paper, I think, uh, different ways of thinking about constructive theory um, uh, as a way to expand on complexity theory and, and, and chemistry and thermodynamics and so on. But uh, back then, and I, mm, well, a few years after, I think later, uh, something like 20, yeah, 2012 or something, I was doing my PhD. Uh, back then, we didn't have uh, any specific application of the theory. So it was more like a program. Right. And right. what happened between then and now, and let's say what I was really interested in when I started working with David and then kind of developed various things on my own, was that I I liked this idea, uh, this new switch, uh, this this sort of switch of perspective, and I thought it was very promising. And then I wanted to find some specific problems that this approach could be applied to. Uh, so then uh, I think in uh, partly my thesis and then later on in my research work, mm -hmm. I uh, did a few things uh, where I applied this theory to various problems. So initially with David, we applied it to information theory and we found a very interesting way of um, expressing with this language of constructive theory, the um, laws, the principles that underlie uh, physical theories of information. So it's it's um, this theory that we developed together, uh, David and I, was to express what are the regularities in nature that are needed for information to exist and uh, also for quantum information to exist. So these are ways of handling both quantum and classical information in the same theoretical framework. And this is very important for um, directional research that I'm really keen on um, nowadays which is the direction where you're thinking of uh, systems that are in interaction with uh, objects that obey quantum theory, but may not themselves be uh, quantum. Maybe they behave according to a new theory. Maybe they behave according to a post-quantum theory. Sure. Uh, for example, gravity is one of these objects because we don't know, we, we have various proposals for quantum gravity, but we don't know um, which particular quantum theory of gravity is the... Uh, correct one yet. Um, and so in that case, it's very important to have a framework, a theoretical framework to handle um, the situation where gravity that may or may not be quantum interacts with the quantum object and uh, a framework that can handle both quantum and classical uh, things, um, let's say, on, on the same, in the same unified scenario. And that's what the constructor theory of information can do for you, among other things. Um, so it's one direction. Another direction where we made progress was thermodynamics. So there, there was an application of constructive theory to thermodynamics 
and to um, expanding on the current formulation of the second law, something that we can discuss later. Right. And then a third direction, uh, broad direction, was the, um, uh, an application of constructive theory to the physics of life. So there are these issues about how, um, what is, you know, what is the simplest entity that can occur in the universe, which uh, can be considered as um, alive? Um, what are the, let's say, essential features of this entity? So does it have to be um, programmable in some way? Is it a kind of programmable constructor? What's the minimal structure of this entity? And uh, in that direction, I think I applied constructor theory to tell us um, under what 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 are let's say the the um, necessary and sufficient conditions for an entity to be capable of self reproducing very accurately? So like, just like uh, living things do. Um, so in a sense, you know, when we think of uh, self reproducing entities, we think of laws of biology. But ultimately, what we can do in biology is really set by the laws of physics that we have available. So. Um, it's interesting from the physics point of view, and especially from the constructor theoretic point of view, to ask, um, considering the laws of physics that we, as we know them, what are the minimal features um, that are both necessary and sufficient for a uh, living system to be capable of self-reproducing accurately? And that's the kind of stuff that constructor theory can deliver on. And I think I, I developed this branch of, of constructor theory with a view of applying this to the study of, uh, you know, for example, the origin of life and possibly the study of life elsewhere in the universe. Um, so these are, let's say, the three macro directions in which mm -hmm. there's been a lot of progress on. And then David has uh, also worked independently on, on various other things to do with um, the universal constructor itself. Um, and finally, the, there are a few things in the pipeline with... Um, some collaborators of mine, uh, Maria Violaris, who is a PhD student, a default student here in Oxford, who's developed um, some interesting results about irreversibility, so again, about thermodynamics. Um, and then some work that David and I are, are doing on the constructive theory of time, so this is kind of forthcoming. Um, and then some extra uh, work on the uh, applications of constructive theory to this uh, area where we have a quantum system interacting with something that may or may not be quantum. And this is something I'm doing with uh, Giuseppe Di Pietro, who is another PhD student here in Oxford. Yes. Uh, so there's a lot of, there's been a lot of work. And, and finally, uh, there's also been an interesting application of uh, constructor theory to the problem of testing quantum effects in gravity, which is something I've developed with uh, Vladko Vedra, who's a physicist here in, in uh, the physics department. So I think that's an overview of what's going on. Um, Wonderful overview. Thank you so much. Thank you. The audience should know that there's a book that you have called The Science of Can and Can't, which goes over these topics in an extremely introductory manner to people who don't know even what a Turing machine is. And so yeah. I have read your recent papers and that book as well. So I'd like to get into some of the technicalities soon. Wonderful. But I would like you to explain the difference between a Turing machine, a universal Turing machine, and then a quantum Turing machine and a constructor and a universal constructor. So please. Yeah, so um, this is a great question because uh, it goes, let's say, at the heart of the matter. Um, so a, um, a Turing machine is a 
programmable um, machine that so it's a, it's an entity which has um, you know you can program to do a number of uh, tasks or transformations, and these transformations are computations. So uh, they are a particular kind of um, transformations that involve um, if you like information variables, and the, a classical Turing machine is a Turing machine that operates according to the laws of physics that, uh, if you like, um, Newton discovered, sure. albeit uh, a discretized version of, of those laws. But let's say, you know, it, it runs on that kind of physics, therefore does not have uh, all the new uh, and very interesting effects that quantum theory um led mm -hmm. us to to discover about a century ago when it was proposed. Um, a quantum Turing machine is a programmable computer, is a programmable machine that can perform computations um, that obeys the laws of quantum theory. So instead of having the laws of uh, Newton or discretized version of those, we have uh, quantum theory, which is, by the way, the one of the best available explanations of the universe. And um, I think David told me an anecdote, which was quite fun uh, at some point where, you know, telling me about how he thought about this universal quantum computer idea initially um, was then, was that he was discussing with someone. And I think um, it was, it, it occurred to him that somehow the um, laws of, um, well, the laws of a standard Turing machine, a classical Turing machine, were running on the wrong physics in a sense because they were using uh, an obsolete type of physics, right? Newton's laws, if you like. Um, whereas uh, somehow computer scientists should have looked into something that ran on uh, the actual uh, laws of physics that, that are, you know, updated now and they they, they obey the, the sort of scheme of, of quantum theory. So somehow the idea was to update, upgrade the idea of a classical Turing machine with the right laws of physics, with the laws of physics that we know um, superseded uh, Newton's laws at the beginning of, of the last century. Um, now, a universal Turing machine is a um, computer, so a programmable machine that can perform computations, um, that's capable of performing all physically allowed computations. So not just one computation or two or whatever, but if you consider the set of all physically possible computations under a given law of physics, the universal Turing machine in that specific physics is capable of performing all of them. So, for example, you can think of a computation being, I don't know, an addition, ad, 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 you know, you can think of addition and uh, multiplication. These are, I don't know, two possible computations. Mm -hmm. you, you can imagine two specific um, entities, one get, that can add things and another computer that can only multiply. Uh, now, a universal, like a, a, a more universal machine than either of those is one that is a computer that can be programmed to perform either multiplication or addition. And now if you consider all the possible computations, a universal computer is one that can be programmed to perform all of these computations put together. So it's like a multi-functional um, entity. And so provided that you give it the right program, it will perform the right computation. Sorry to interrupt, but the computer that someone is listening to this on their iPhone or their desktop, is that a universal computer? 
Yes, so that's a universal, uh, it's an approximation of a universal uh, classical Turing machine, yes. So I think that's the, the, what Turing gave us with his ideas uh, was basically the model, the theory, let's say, that that powered all of the mm, information technology that we currently use. And uh, the idea is that the quantum universal Turing machine will upgrade these machines when when they you know when when the universal quantum computer comes about um, in ways that they can perform new algorithms that are based on quantum laws rather than the classical laws of physics. And now constructors are simply so if you are happy with this idea of programming something to perform a computation, which is what Turing machines are about, constructors bring the uh, this concept um, a level up in the sense that instead of just having computations as uh, the transformations that you're considering in the repertoire of your machine, you have um, any physical transformation that is conceivable. So um, in the case of uh, so a constructor is a programmable machine that can perform a given task. Uh, the task can be a computation. So co computers, Turing machines are special cases of constructors, but constructors can be more general. Uh, and typically, examples of constructors are uh, things like um, catalysts, um, uh, com computers, as I said, uh, heat engines, um, 3D printers, all sorts of machines that can be programmed to perform a um, transformation, a physical transformation, and also have the ability that they can uh, perform it and stay unchanged in the... Mm -hmm. Uh, capacity of performing the transformation again. This is very important. This is true for computers too. They are special cases for constructors because, you know, they perform a computation and then you want them to be able to do it over and over again. Uh, and I think the ideal Turing machine should be able to do this indefinitely. Uh, likewise, constructors have this feature of being a program of being uh, able to perform a task and then repeat this uh, over and over again if given the right input. Um, and so. Again, programmable constructors are those that can be programmed to perform given tasks. And then a universal constructor is one is a constructor that has all of the possible tasks in its repertoire. So you can program it to perform any task that is physically allowed. And there can be a, a quantum programmable constructor and a quantum universal constructor uh, and possibly a universal constructor that runs on better laws of physics than those we currently know. So maybe post-quantum uh, constructors. Mm -hmm. and um, but so the idea is always the same. Uh, different laws of physics give you different sets of tasks that can be performed, just like different laws of physics give you different computations being performable by a Turing machine. Um, and so the, the von Neumann's idea was really to extend the scheme of Turing's to other tasks that are not just computations. Um, so thermodynamics transformations are an example. Chemical reactions are another example. And von Neumann specifically was concerned about emulating life. And so he noticed that uh, the reason why he thought of this constructor idea was that he noticed that in the Turing machines um, model, there was a gap in the sense that you are not, a, it's impossible to program a, a Turing machine, a universal Turing machine, whether it's quantum, classical or whatever, to uh, self-replicate. So you you can program a computer to simulate um, a self-reproducing cell, 
But if you wanted to program your own computer to create a replica of itself, which would be very convenient, out of raw materials, that can't be done. Reason is that simply the scheme of Turing doesn't accommodate for this kind of stuff. Um, it only accommodates for computations to be performed on a tape and doesn't have things like arms and things that can be assembled things and so on. Mm -hmm. So you have to get out of the scheme of Turing's, uh, Turing's machines. You, you have to sort of think of something more general. And that's where von Neumann landed on the idea of the universal constructor. Okay, great. So how does one make a difference between what's extremely unlikely and what's impossible? So it's my understanding from what you've just said and from the papers I've read is that the traditional way of doing physics is that you have some initial data set and you evolve it forward. That's like the dynamics. And the constructor way of looking at it is, okay, well, actually, let me go back. What you can do is then look at these laws as some causes that produce some effect. And one of those effects may be that entropy tends to increase. Okay, so in other words, you can derive thermodynamics from statistical mechanics. So it seems like constructor theory is working backward by looking at the effects and then stating those as laws rather than deriving them. So when I hear you say, look, entropy doesn't, or the heat engine, entropy doesn't increase, but well, entropy is not likely to increase. So at what point do we make a cutoff between the likeliness and saying that something's impossible? Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so the... So let's first consider the fact that when you have to when you say that something is possible or impossible you're not directly referring to likelihood or probabilities for it to happen so somehow probabilities are not there in the foundations of constructor theory and they come as say derivative statements approximate things uh, but somehow they're not necessarily built in fact they're not built at all in the foundations of the theory and this is a plus in a sense so when you say that something is um a task is um, impossible. What you mean is that um, there is a law that forbids the fact that this transformation, these physical transformations that's referred to by the task, is um, brought about to 
arbitrarily high accuracy by a constructor. So by this device that can operate in a cycle by returning the substrate that you gave to the constructor in the right input state uh-huh, uh-huh. in the correct output state. And so if the laws of physics say um, there is some fundamental limit beyond which we can't go as far as um, this uh, transformation is concerned, meaning there cannot be a, con- a, a full cycle that can operate this transformation and then return itself to the original um, state of affairs, just like a catalyst would do, that's the case when the task is impossible. A very uh, simple example is the task of changing the energy of a substrate. So uh, if you want to change the energy of a battery, for example, so, you know, from low to mm-hmm, high, mm-hmm. Um, you need, so you can't do it with, you can't do it with a constructor without any other side effects because uh, the constructor will have to give up some energy because of conservation of energy, it would give up some energy to the battery. Yes, yes. Thereby not being able to return itself to the original state of being able to perform the task again to the same, um, you know, degree of accuracy. So, so that's an example of uh, a transformation that's actually possible in the sense that it can happen, it can occur under laws of physics, because obviously we can use another source of energy to replenish the battery once it's on low. However, this other source will have to be depleted itself. So it cannot be a constructor. Uh, so now if you're looking for um, any, a constructor that can uh, give you energy without depleting itself, you will have to go to a physics where conservation of energy isn't true. And so it's not the kind of physics that we believe um, kind of mm, describes our universe. Likewise, you can think of another example of an impossible transformation. That's the case of um, in quantum theory. Uh, we know that we cannot reliably copy any two states of a physical system. This is related to the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the fact that you cannot measure reliably um, any two observables of a physical system. Typically, is used, you know, we say the velocity and the position of an electron cannot be both measured simultaneously with the same device. Indirectly, this is a constructive static statement because it says we cannot have a constructor that can copy or um, or um, measure accurately these two variables uh, without changing itself in some way. And so it's no longer a constructor, right? Um, so these are examples of impossible tasks. And note that I haven't talked about probabilities there yet. Um, and now if you have laws of physics that, let's say, tell you a number of things that are impossible, but the rest, they don't constrain, then whatever is left is a possible task. So if you, you know, if you think of a way of expressing a theory in constructor theoretic terms, you will have a a number of, uh, statements about tasks being impossible. And, um, those that are not impossible are possible in the sense that then somehow it's, it's, it's allowed Mm -hmm. to to bring about a constructor that can perform these tasks. And there is where you can think of um, somehow approximate constructors. So when you're thinking of an, a possible task being realized, performed, uh, let's imagine a possible task is, uh, for instance, to uh, copy the two values of a bit. So, you know, zero and one can be copied. We know this is possible. Uh-huh, we, uh-huh. we do it all the time, approximately in, in computers. Um, so you know you have zero and one and etc. Now um, 
the fact that the task is possible is um, a statement about an idealized scenario where you're thinking, okay, that means that um, there's a number, there are a number of ways of um, approximating arbitrarily well this behavior of an ideal constructor that can copy zero and one when given them in input. Yes. Now, of course, if we look at each particular realization of a copier in any of the computers that we have, for example, they will be approximate. So they won't work perfectly in the sense that at some point they may break down, they may incur in errors, etc. But this is simply um, a feature of the fact that our, uh, you know, we, we're using limited resources to implement each particular realization of a copier. However, the laws of physics, as far as we know, don't put any limit on how well we can copy. So it means that for each of these imperfect constructors that are approximate, we can work a bit harder, you know, put a bit more resources into the into the particular device that we have, make it better so we can meet a, a better accuracy uh, target if, if we want to. And so the fact that task is possible simply means there isn't a limitation beyond which we cannot go as far as accuracy is concerned for this task, as far as we know. Um, so these are very different statements from the statement that something is unlikely. So a transformation can be unlikely uh, or, in, you know, uh, or, like, or more likely depending on the kind of statement you're looking at. But that would mean simply, for example, that in the standard way of thinking about physics, there is a, a bunch of possible trajectories that can be realized, as you, as you were saying. And um, given the initial conditions and what we know about them, we can say that a given trajectory is more likely to occur than another. But that doesn't mean necessarily that there is a constructor that can operate the transformation that corresponds to that trajectory, let's say, of the mm. particle going mm -hmm. from A to B. So that's a different statement. The fact that the tra trajectory is very likely, for example, just means that if we run the system and those are the initial conditions, uh, if we run repeated experiments, we will see most of the times that trajectory to occurring. But it doesn't mean that um, necessarily there is a constructor, so this device that can work in a cycle to bring this transformation about. Uh, so the fact that the trajectory is very likely doesn't necessarily mean that the task associated with it is possible. And likewise, okay. the fact that the transformation is unlikely doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the task understood, understood. is yeah. concerned. Yeah. So, for example, you know, you could say, in you know, given the initial conditions we have, some transformations that are currently occurring really in you know very reliably in some laboratories, I don't know, in CERN or something, um, you know, they're very unlikely, uh, you know, compared to the standard processes, physical processes occur natural, you know, they are naturally occurring in the universe. However, they are possible tasks because we can simply harness enough energy and enough uh, sort of um, devices that compose the CERN's labs, if you like, and, and, and we can actually reliably bring those transformations about. So even though some trajectories are unlikely, um, they can correspond to possible tasks. In fact, most of the things we do in laboratories even in quantum computing laboratories, uh, are very unlikely trajectories for certain entities, certain charges or whatever, fields, et cetera. And yet we can bring them about really accurately uh, simply because we are following some sort of uh, program to, mm -hmm. to implement these things in the, in the laboratory. So I, I guess this is a difference between something being likely and something being possible and likewise uh, unlikely and impossible. I see. 
Okay, let me see if I have the terminology correct. There's something called resource theories, and I understand that constructor theory is not a resource theory, but resource theories also deal with tasks and then ingredients that you put together to make some input transformation, some output. Let's say we have this cup and we have a bucket of water, a full bucket of water, and I want to fill this cup. So then we can combine them to make the task full cup of water after the bucket has poured in some water into it. Yeah. But it's my understanding that this bucket wouldn't be a constructor because this bucket runs out of water. It's not something you can keep repeating. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then is this realistic then for a constructor to exist? There's no infinite bucket of water that exists, for instance. Is that realistic? How do you think about this? Well, that simply means the transformations of um, changing the content of a battery or whatever, if you're talking about a, a concert quantity. I think uh, in your example, if you like, you we can substitute your example with the idea of energy and the battery because then we sure, can use sure. the conservation of energy as the thing that puts a limit on what you can do. Um, so in, in the case of, a, of, a, of the energy conservation and changing the energy value of a battery, um, there is a different task that is possible, which is that it's the, it's the task of um, transferring some energy from one subsystem to another. So that is a possible task. Meaning there can be a constructor can, can <coughs> set up, uh, you know, a, a thing that reliably, um, you know, if you have a if you have an iPhone or whatever a smartphone that's uh, run out of, of juice, uh, you can plug it in as power supply. And if you consider the joint system of the power supply and the and the smartphone, uh. um, on that system there is a possible task that can be performed, and simply means you're transferring some energy from from one side to the other. So it's like, if you want to think about it, in, not in terms of uh, batteries and charges, you can think of it in terms of um, a seesaw. So you you, yes. you know you have like a seesaw uh, with two weights, and uh, they can move like this. Um, and the task of changing the relative positions of these two entities is possible. However, um, changing the position of one side is not a possible task by itself because you would have to use energy to do that. So, so you can still talk about the fact that a charger is possible or a seesaw is possible by considering the joint system of the thing that you want to recharge and the charge the battery supply, or if you like, in the case of the seesaw of the, of both uh, sides of the seesaw. So it's, it's completely, um, I would say it's it's completely fine to talk about it in this in those terms, and uh, in a way it's more insightful because it tells you um, it tells you somehow where is it that the the constraints are right. So the reason mm -hmm. why we need a power supply is because the you know the fact that we care about the fact that the battery runs out of juice is simply because there isn't a. Um, well, we need to supply the energy from somewhere else once it's gone. And the reason why we need to do that is the conservation of energy. After all, the fact that uh, overall in the universe, the energy is conserved. And so whenever you change the energy in one subsystem, you have to change it somewhere else as well. And the, the, the interesting thing is that you can explain then some limitations of what you can do, for example, with a, a heat engine or... Um, 
uh, like a you know any 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 kind of engine that that runs on the laws of thermodynamics as we know them, in terms of the fact that energy is conserved. So that's the explanatory power of the law of conservation of energy, which you can express in constructivistic terms by saying the energy changing the energy of the substrate is impossible. Um, and so that's the content of the theory. And in a sense, I think, unlike uh, what you mentioned, resource theory, the 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 difference between say what constructive theory does and, and resource theory is simply that, um, well, there's some technical difference, but I think the most important difference is that resource theory is more like a framework where you can express existing uh, dynamical laws or with some symmetries uh, in this language of transformations being allowed or disallowed. Uh, and then sometimes they also care about the fact that the transformations are performed reliably and then they talk about the catalyst which has some overlap with constructors. But the main difference is that they don't have principles of their own. So resource theory is not a physical theory. It's a, it's a, it's a framework to express physical theories. Whereas uh. constructor theory has principle, principles of its own. So it's, 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 um, it's an attempt to have actual laws of physics in addition to those we have currently that can supplement the dynamical laws and tell us more about the universe. So the laws of information are an example the new laws of thermodynamics that we formulated are another example. So somehow it goes beyond the physics we know currently in the hope of having new predictions, ultimately, uh, not mm -hmm. explanations as well, but also ultimately having informing some new tests that, that can be somehow tested in laboratory and sort of changed. Uh, you know, it, it, it can provide some sort of um, extra predictions, extra tests compared to what we currently can do with the laws that we know. When you're repeating a task, are you doing so using a constructor or the constructor? So in other words, are you reusing the same constructor or are you pulling from a different constructor every single time? No, uh, so it's the, in, the, in the ideal case, is the same. So, you, so let's talk about the ideal case. It's a bit like a heat engine is the same constructor. So the idea is you've got the same constructor, like a fridge, and you want to cool the, I don't know, Kind Cup of water coffee. of sorts. Sure. And so there's the fridge and the power supply. Yeah, exactly. And and um, it should be, so once you do it with one um, object, you would like to take it out, enjoy mm -hmm, it cold, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then put a new one inside the same fridge. Um, ultimately, a particular fridge, simply because it's uh, imperfect, will you know, at some point break. But the point is that you can build a better one that lasts longer, and as far as we know, there is no limitation to how well you can approximate the perfect fridge, considering also the power supply that comes with it. Uh, whereas for other things like copiers for quantum states, for states that are not orthogonal in quantum theory, so that the, this, this perfect measure for, say, position and velocity of an electron, it's not that any actual instance of this measure is imperfect, it's really that you cannot construct a machine of that kind. So th there is a limitation to the accuracy um, that this cop this measure can 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 work. Um, and this this accuracy simply cannot be increased beyond a certain value. And this is a law of physics that's that's built into quantum theory. So these are the two different statements. So one statement is any particular um, instance of a, so a real uh, constructor, a, re a real approximate constructor will at some point break down, but we can perform, you know, we can build a better one. Uh, and that's the case when the task is possible. When the task is impossible, like in the case of the of, of measuring 
position and velocity of a, of a particle, of a quantum particle, a measure for those two entities simply cannot exist, which means that you can build very uh, poor measures of those two things that will be wrong most of the times when they're trying to measure both um, both position and momentum, position and velocity, um, and they cannot improve beyond the certain accuracy. There's like a finite limit beyond which they can't go. And these are two very different situations. Do you think of constructor theory as a law of physics or as a framework for explaining physics? Like, is it more general than just physics? Is it a paradigm in science rather than a theory of science? Is it a way of going about investigating? I'd say it's both in the sense that, uh, so it has some laws of its own that are formulated in the way that I said. So stating what transformations are possible and impossible. Um, but also because it's somehow phrased in this different way from the standard traditional dynamical law plus initial condition type of approach is also a new paradigm. So it's not just um, as a physical theory with new laws in it. It also has uh, the value of being a new framework or a new language to express uh, laws of physics. So it has both mm -hmm. components. But the most important one to me is, I think, um, well, they're both important, but somehow the one that, that intrigues me the most is the fact that it should uh, ultimately allow us to say more than, um, if it pans out as we expect, more than what the current laws say. So it has a physical content of its own, which is non-trivial. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be just a framework to rephrase things that we already know, which could also be interesting, but somehow perhaps is less interesting than, say, this um, this this um, boulder yeah. program that, that we are hoping uh, will pan out in this way. You hope to have as an emergent theory, quantum theory and general relativity? Yes. So, yeah. So, I, so another aspect of constructive theory is that um, perhaps this is a complement, a supplement to the previous question you asked. Um, so the, um, the, the way in which constructive theory works is that it doesn't pin down with its principles one specific dynamical theory. So uh, we are hoping that, and I think we, we demonstrate this for quantum theory at least, and we're in the process of doing this for general relativity, that both quantum theory and general relativity um, are compatible with constructive theory's principles. So, for instance, if you take the principles about information, uh, we know they are compatible with quantum theory, and mm -hmm. we also have arguments to say that they are compatible with general relativity. And in that sense, they are nice, because even if you are maybe skeptical about the, um, the fact that these principles are really fundamental laws, so you can be agnostic about whether this is a better way to formulate the laws of sure. physics, you can still find them useful because... Um, you can still find these principles of constructive theory very useful because if they are things that are obeyed by both quantum theory and general relativity that we know don't um, you know don't go together as as theories themselves because general relativity is a classical theory doesn't have quantum effects mm -hmm. in it whereas quantum theory is quantum uh, you can appeal to these more general principles of constructive theories to provide explanations and make predictions in a context where both general relativity and quantum theory apply, but we don't know how to put the two theories together. But then we can appeal to these more general principles that do apply in that regime. And that's very much of interest for testing quantum gravity because that's exactly the regime where 
we know that, um, you know, maybe one of the quantum theories of gravity that have been proposed may apply, but we don't know which one is the right one. And so having these principles that are more general is very useful because you can appeal to them. And the fact that they work both for GR, for general relativity and quantum theory is a plus. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of quantum theory also as a bridge. These principles could be useful to guess a theory that goes beyond quantum theory and GR. Mm-hmm. as well as to help us find um, predictions or experiments that can test the realm where this theory is relevant. So this realm where, for example, testing quantum gravity effects is, is, um, is well, it's one of the applications of, of these principles of constructive theory. And that's the stuff I've, I was mentioning earlier I've done with uh, Vladko. So thinking of constructor theory as some high energy theory that in the low energy limit reproduces the standard model or GR is the wrong way of thinking about it. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yes, I think I think that's um, that isn't because uh, that's the standard way of going about some toe, some theory of everything. Yeah, that's that's actually a great thing you said there because um, that's the that's the standard way to go about this thing of finding quantum gravity theories, right? So you think, well, um, you know, I've got these two things. You know, I've got um, quantum theory, non-relativistic quantum theory, and then I have relativistic uh, theories like either GR, general relativity, yeah. or special relativity. Then I'm, I'm, let's find a way to put them together mathematically, right? That they kind of, and then there are proposals how to do that. Uh, there's, um, we have quantum field theory. Um, then we have um, some quantum theories of gravity that can work in a low energy regime. Then there are those that actually work at higher energy, etc. And each of those will give you a prediction. Um, Unfortunately, most of the predictions can be tested. For the, the quantum gravity predictions are very difficult to test. Um, and then, so what you do is that you say, okay, well, let's just look at some regimes that are experimentally accessible. So that's the kind of logic that you have when you present mm-hmm. those theories. And you're hoping that one of them will be, you will find an experiment that corroborates one of those quantum theories of gravity and refutes effectively the classical theory of gravity, which is general relativity. So you would like ultimately some sign of the fact that gravity is 
quantum, so it doesn't obey general relativity after all, because general relativity is a classical theory. Now, in constructor theories, we are taking a different approach. We are considering the um, set of, if you like, symmetries or constraints that uh, both quantum theory and general relativity satisfy together. So it's an exercise of saying, okay, I don't really look at the specific dynamical laws that these two theories have, uh, but I'm trying to ex extract some deeper symmetry that they both um, agree on. For instance, the fact that both um, for, allow for things like observables. Yeah, you know, okay. the, the, there is a concept of an observable both in quantum theory as well as in general relativity mm -hmm. or in special relativity. And these observables um, obey certain laws of information theory. And in constructor theory, we can express those laws. And then uh, by looking at this, uh, this common area of, of uh, let's say, agreement of the two theories, you can consider this deeper structure where the, the two theories agree, which requires you to forget about most of the formal details of the two theories. So you will be throwing away various aspects of both quantum theory and general relativity. There are specific formalisms. But you're looking at this deeper structure where they do agree. And for example, the information theoretic structure um, that concerns observables is something that the two theories agree on. So the fact that there are local observables that you can measure some of these observables and, and so on is something that the two theories agree on. Then, of course, general relativity is classical, quantum theory isn't, but I think there is a fundamental structure of, of observables that they share. They also share things like locality um, and, and other features of information theory that are uh, in common. And you use these things, these common um, constraints, to um, make some prediction about these uh, regimes where a quantum system is in interaction with gravity. And this actually is very uh, powerful because it allows you to imagine experiments that are um, in the low energy regime, but they allow you to extract quantum features of gravity in a way that's easier than, um, than, than ways that somehow were proposed before to test specifically quantum, a specific quantum theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. And this is very exciting because it, it tells us that quantum effects in gravity can actually be, are, are easier to, to, to capture than uh, it was previously thought. And it's nice that these uh, tests that I'm discussing as part of my work uh, with Latko and other collaborators, um, these, these, these tests are really um, somehow probing a regime where uh, we're not going to very high energies, so it's, it's easier to actually access those regimes. And they rest on these general principles of information theory. They're very robust and they are obeyed both by general relativity and by quantum theory. So that's, that's maybe the way in which it's nice to think about constructor theory as being relevant to this problem that you mentioned. And you mentioned earlier post-quantum, the word post-quantum, which rings a bell to me with Jonathan Oppenheim's stochastic gravity. And I believe you're both in the same university, so maybe the same departments. Is that the case? And do you... I think... Uh, I think um, he's at UCL. We are in the same kind of, well, we are interested in the same topic to some degree. Um, I guess quantum foundations, uh, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's in UCL and I'm in Oxford, but it doesn't matter really. Oh, but my the mistake. Point is okay. That it's, no, no, no. It's, it's, um, it's true that, that we 
um, have some common interests. With his British accent. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think approximating a, a British accent is very difficult for me, but I think <laughs> I'm trying my best to sort of, you know, blend in. Um, right, right, right. But, but um, yeah, I think the, um, the, the thing that you mentioned is very relevant because, okay, that's an example of a theory that is specifically going to describe uh, gravity and um, quantum, quantum systems in a way that gravity is classical. So that's, um, so, you know, broadly speaking, we can divide physicists in two, two camps. One camp says that gravity is actually quantum and we only, you know, we, we just have to find mm-hmm. the right set of conditions to show that it is quantum uh, with an experiment. And also we have some uh, ready theoretical proposals for quantum gravity, which exist. Um, some of them are um, have been developed in, in the past uh, decades and they they sort of have some predictions, et cetera. So, but, but let's say no matter which particular proposal you, you favor, I think if you are in this camp, your heart is saying that gravity is quantum mechanical after all, whereas general relativity says it's classical. And then there is a different camp that says that um, gravity is actually classical. Um, and when it couples to a quantum system, various things can occur, but ultimately it will cause the quantum system to derail and become somewhat less of a quantum system. So it will become more classical than it should be. In this camp, you will find not just Jonathan Oppenheim, but many people that have been uh, proposing for, for years these uh, dynamical collapse theories. Um, Gerardi, Rimini, right. Weber, there are all sorts of um, big names there. Roger Penrose with his um, collapse of the wave function due to gravity. So there are all sorts of great minds that have been sort of powering this camp uh, in, in many different ways. Which one do you belong to? I belong to the former. So I, I think gravity is not just, I think gravity is quantum mechanical and I think we just have to wait, um, you know, for, for, the, for the right experiment to be performed. But the exciting thing is that this, um, this theory that you mentioned that Jonathan Oppenheim has put forward, together with many other theories of classical gravity that have been proposed over the years, um, can be refuted by this experiment that I was mentioning earlier. And this is what makes this experiment very exciting um, because it it can allow us to find um, a spot where we can at least tell whether gravity has some quantum features or or not. So the, the test would entail two quantum objects, two masses, being um, quantum correlated, entangled through gravity. So if gravity is capable of creating these correlations between two masses, uh, then we can use this argument from constructor theory to conclude that this actually that gravity has to have some quantum features. Um, and this is nice because it will allow us to rule out immediately all classical theories of gravity, not just general relativity, but yeah. also other proposals like uh, those I mentioned earlier, the collapse theories, um, quantum field theory in curved space-time, which is another theory where gravity is classical, Jonathan Oppenheim's um, classical gravity theory, and many others. And I think this is very exciting because um, it's something that hasn't been done so far, and it's, that's the reason why there are still these proposals to say that gravity is classical after all. And it's quite... If you think about it, it's really a very important issue at the heart of physics because 
in order to find a good quantum theory of gravity, you need to be motivated that gravity has to be quantum. But if, say, part of the physics community is already even doubting that gravity is quantum, then there isn't much of an incentive to look into a quantum theory of gravity. So somehow it would really be important to do this uh-huh. experiment because it will allow us to at least say, okay, now we can give up on this idea that gravity is classical. Let's really get on and you know with it and try to find the right quantum theory of gravity. Um, we don't even have that confirmation, experimentally speaking. So it's really nice to have this kind of experiment out there. And it's something that people are working on to, to actually implement these days. So it's really it's really an exciting thing. How do we know when to take a limiting theorem, like a no-go theorem at one level? So for instance, you said the no-cloning theorem before, and then yeah. apply that under constructor theory when we're already thinking that it may not be the case that the laws of quantum mechanics or quantum field theory are the final laws. There may be something else that's underneath it. Why are we taking what's a no-go theorem up here and applying it to something that's more fundamental? That is a great question, and I think it's part of this um, of this search for the more fundamental, the deeper structure of quantum theory. So, so if you take quantum theory as it is, there are lots of features in it, and they are all packaged into the same into the formalism. So, um, if you think for the, for those who are not maybe specialists, the um, mathematics is a very powerful language. And when you write an equation of motion, like in quantum theory, um, it gives you lots of things in just condensed in, in, in this equation uh, without giving much depth into when you're looking at, at all of these features. Some of them are deeper than others. Uh-huh. Um, for example, you can have um, particular features of the mathematical formalism that you're using to express the dynamical law of quantum theories, which may be parochial in the sense that they are they happen to be relevant for quantum theory, but they are not really fundamental. And then they, they, there are some other features to do with the fact that uh, the laws are local, that they um, are, for example, one-to-one, so they they map the, you know a set of states. Uh, there are not two states that go into the same state, so you know uh-huh. you, you keep uh, different states into different states. That's an that's an important. It's called logical reversibility. Yeah. Um, that's one thing that comes for free in the laws of quantum theory, but it's a deeper feature of them that also is shared by classical theories of physics and by general relativity, et cetera. And then there are things like what you just mentioned now, the no-cloning theorem, which is a thing that you can prove mathematically from the laws of quantum theory, but have a deeper essence in the sense that they are part of the um, of the set of constraints that power the information theoretic uh, structure of, of quantum information or quantum systems. And so by using an information theoretic perspective, you can see that this no-cloning theorem is not just a mathematical feature that happens to be true of specifically quantum theory, Mm. but it's a thing that um, holds promise for being uh, a a general feature, something that even if quantum theory turns out to be wrong, so you have to modify the formalism and so on, it's very likely that this feature of not being able to copy... um, yeah. 
two different states that are not uh, that don't belong to the same physical observable um, is a feature that will stay. So whatever modification you do to the mathematics of quantum theory, it's very likely that it will be, or it's inevitable that it will be. Well, it's difficult to say it's inevitable because these things are a matter. If you like, you know. As a physicist, you also have a, a matter of taste, if you like. You know, you're thinking yeah. of things according to your own philosophy and, and so on. But I would say that there's there are lots of lots of good arguments to expect that this feature will stay. Uh, simply because um, it corresponds to the fact that some transformations are impossible. We we know that they're impossible. We've even done a number of um tests that actually indirectly uh test this feature. And so it's an, if you like, it's to do with the operational um, information theoretic structure of quantum theory rather than with the specific law of quantum theory. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very um, natural to to imagine that the next theory will conserve these features and maybe have more that are even more uh, exotic and exciting. Just like in the case of classical physics, um, the fact that So if you think of classical physics and quantum theory, the information theoretic structure of of classical physics has been um, maintained within quantum theory, but then there are extra features, as we know. So the fact that you you can have an observable in in classical physics is also true in quantum theory. It's just that now you have extra properties of these observables that are even more interesting or exotic. And so it's reasonable to expect uh, you can make some arguments. So I see. In fact, that these uh, features that have to do, with, for example, with no cloning, that is a constraint on what you cannot do with certain information theoretic variables, will stay in the next theory. And maybe more constraints will come along and, and perhaps more interesting properties will be there. But they won't undo this change from classical physics. So it, to me, it's very unnatural to think that we'll go back to the structure of classical physics where, say, you can clone any state. Um, and so, the, the, in a sense, the, um, you know, this, this theory, uh, the idea of taking some of, these, um, some of these properties of quantum systems, their information theoretic versions as um, general guidelines yes. to, to, to describe post-quantum systems, is um is a guess, but I think it's a well informed one. So somehow we are we are thinking this is this is this is how it's going to pan out. Yes, yes. But understood. I have to say many people would disagree. So it, there's a lot of debate there. It's quite hot as a topic. <laughs> and that's maybe why we can't make progress in certain directions because there there are two diametrically opposed, you know, ways of looking at things um in these in these um physics right, circles. Right. And that's usually where the fun part of science is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I still want to get to some of your papers, your recent ones. You have a couple on ghost particles and how you yeah. can possibly even detect them, which I would love to know more about because it's my understanding that they're undetectable by their nature. So we're going to get to that. But I believe in one of those papers, you said that there were inequivalent representations of QFT and that that not only has some um, interpretive issues for philosophers, but also for the mathematicians working on curved spaces or curved space times. So can you please explain what you mean by that? And does this pose a problem to all theories of quantum gravity, even string theory? Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Right, so um, I don't think that, that this is necessarily, so just starting from the last bit of the question, I don't think this is necessarily a problem for quantum gravity theories. So the, the way, uh, this is some work I've done with uh, Vladko, the way we wrote this uh, this paper this couple of, of, of papers, um, was to um, investigate some foundations of quantum field theory and also of um, the theory of gravity that's called linear quantum gravity, which is um, a low-energy uh, approximation that uh, on which all of the quantum gravity proposals we now converge. So string theory, loop quantum gravity, et cetera, I agree with this uh, theory that is basically a, a field theory for gravity, uh -huh. a quantum field theory for gravity uh, in the low energy regime. And the, all of this was informed by this experiment that I mentioned earlier and by also some uh, more constructor theoretic uh, questions that have to do with what counts as an observable in field theory, both in quantum field theory for electromagnetism, so for the theory of light and for the theory of gravity in this low energy regime. And there were some surprising answers to this question. Um, and this fits into a more, into a broader uh, agenda, if you like, or a broader um, philosophical uh, take that I have on, on things. And that uh, I think Vladko also resonates with me on as far as some aspects are concerned, which is that so quantum field theory is a theory that um, has lots of issues. So it's it's a problematic theory. And in fact, was proposed by th those who invented it more like as a sort of recipe for making calculations as an approximation in, you know, in, in the while waiting for a better theory. Exactly. Yeah. However, what happened during the years is that um, while the initial, you know, the founding fathers of quantum field theory did know that this was a sort of collection of tricks to make calculations, but didn't have strong foundations philosophically and theoretically. Um, the, the, the next generation of physicists, which includes many and finally also myself, 
um, we, we, we've somehow forgotten about this fact. And so we are using it to calculate all sorts of things successfully, but somehow uh -huh. we've lost sight of the fact that the foundations are shaky. So this is um, an attempt um, to look into the foundations, go back to look into the foundations. And I think there are many other people who are doing this. Uh, so not, not everyone has this view, but I think the prevailing view is the quantum field theory is all right as it is. And I think um, that isn't so. And these papers were uh, making the point that, that we should actually look a bit more carefully into, into what quantum field theory itself means. Mm -hmm. And just as a quick point, when you yes. say the foundations, some people who say, I work on the foundations of quantum theory, they mean the foundations of quantum mechanics most of the time. They don't mean, I work on the foundations of quantum field theory, which is different. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's, that, that is true. Uh, and and um, so, the, so quantum mechanics isn't um, explicitly relativistic. So um, if you want to put it together, at least with special relativity you need to modify it. And I think uh, quantum field theory is exactly what, you know, is an attempt to do that. Um, and the the interesting thing is that the, even though quantum, non-relativistic quantum mechanics is, uh, from the information theory point of view, is more or less equivalent to quantum field theory. Um, and also it's also local, doesn't violate, doesn't allow you to signal faster than light and all of these things. Um, it still doesn't have all the features of, of uh, that are satisfactory as far as special relativity at least is concerned. So that's why you have to upgrade the theory to quantum field theory. However, when you do that, there are lots more problems that come in that 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 um, that occur, and these problems are maybe not so important for say making predictions about mm -hmm. particle physics and th that kind of enterprise which is going well and everyone is happy with what's going on there to some degree. But they are still important for the foundations because they inform the way we think of the next theory of quantum gravity itself, etc. And so uh, that's that's why we are dissatisfied with it, and we would like to make it, uh, you know, to draw attention to the fact that there is a problem. Those two papers specifically um, were looking at to at uh, so so at both gravity and the electromagnetic case, but we focus on the electromagnetic case as an example, both because it's mathematically simpler and also um, it, it allows you to make the case in a more transparent way. And short, you know, this, to cut a long story short, the, um, the way we think about this is that um, when you, so when you, um, when you try to construct a quantum field theory for the, th for, for, uh, for the electromagnetic field, the usual procedure is that you start from the classical theory of Maxwell's equations, if you like, and then you apply what in jargon is called a quantization procedure. So you can think of it as a sort of machine that you're, you just got the handle, uh -huh, you put uh -huh. in a theory that's classical and out comes something that's quantum. So it's a, it's a procedure that's been put together by various um, people uh, in, in, you know, a few decades ago. Um, and, the problem with that is that you can um, follow different paths to perform this quantization. And even though they uh, all agree on certain observable effects, so experimental outcomes, they are not equivalent physically speaking. So for example, they have for the for the electromagnetic field uh, different uh, ways of describing the, the quantized electromagnetic field 
have different numbers of um um of of subsystems that so the photons are the quantized element of the electromagnetic fields and different ways of quantizing it lead to different kinds of photons being there and uh the um, there is one way of doing this quantization which is uh explicitly compatible with relativity and this is um in jargon is known as choosing a given gauge which is called the lorentz gauge and when you do this you have um basically four kinds of photons that behave quantum mechanically and they are part of your electromagnetic field that is quantized according to this procedure uh-huh. and the typical way of thinking about these things is that um two two of these four kinds of photons are only there to uh, as mathematical entities but they're not really measurable so they they can't really do much in, so you you can't observe them they are just tricks mathematical tricks that are useful to do your calculations but you shouldn't be able to not only to detect them directly so to cl- to have a click from the particular these, these these photons uh, but also they shouldn't be detectable otherwise so they're they're deemed as ghosts because they are there mathematically to help you make calculations but they are not uh, essential in fact there are different ways of quantizing the field the electromagnetic field that only have let's say two kinds of photons not four and so these two ghost uh, modes or two ghost photons are not uh, there yes in those other ways and why is it okay simply because given that they are not observable n- no one cares and yes. and we are all happy that in some other ways of quantizing the field they are not there now if you uh, so this is uh, this is the usual story but the problem is that if you look at the particular kind of experiment that i mentioned earlier where you have now two charges not two masses they interact with um the standard electrostatic um quasi electro quasi static um sort of um, coulombian force okay. uh potential if you like and they um get entangled through this through this interaction so it's a very simple problem you've got two charges they're interacting with one another and they get um entangled through this interaction the if you want a local description of what's going on meaning a description that satisfies locality at each point of the description you are forced into using this um, mode of quantization that uses four four kinds of photons and particularly the ghost photons are very important in the in the local dynamical description of how the entanglement comes about Uh-huh. And so in the papers in both papers we make a point that um there is a way to indirectly detect these ghost photons by looking at the phases that you can create on these uh charge probes. And this is a thing that hasn't been thought about by people who usually deal with quantum field theory because they think of they usually think in terms of input output um scattering amplitudes this is one kind of bit of jargon to just look at they they look at certain physical processes that are very natural to look at in certain contexts specifically particle um and you know particle physics and and quantum field theory in the sort of traditional way but if you look at quantum field theory from the quantum information point of view 
where the, the emphasis is on phases and on things that you can extract out of charges once they interact mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the field. It's very, if you draw, if you use this principle of locality and various other uh, principles to, to sort of guide your analysis, you will see that measuring features of the two charges among which there is the entanglement between them that's caused by this electrostatic interaction is equivalent to measuring uh, accessing these um, ghost photons as dynamical degrees of freedom. And this is something that um, it's very interesting because somehow it seems to um, at least contradict the standard way of thinking about these ghost photons. And it can also be the same argument you can carry it out in the gravitational field case in the linear quantum gravity regime. Um, it's just it's more complicated. So uh-huh. there are, instead of photons, you have gravitons and there are more kinds of gravitons involved. But the, the, the idea is the same. So the idea basically is this, that if you insist on having a local account of what's going on in a very simple quantum information experiment that involves two charges or two masses or even just one charge in the field, you have to somehow come to terms with the fact that these ghost modes are indirectly observable. So you cannot measure a ghost photon in the same way that you can get a click out of a photon. Yes, in the yes, tank. yes. But they are important. They are degrees of freedom that can be indirectly uh, uncovered by measuring features of the charges once they interact through the field. It's as if the charges got clouded with the field. And then by measuring the charges, you're extracting features of the field. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're extracting these ghost features and not the ones that are supposed to be measurable. Uh, and this is very interesting. I think this is a sort of, um, we are hoping this will cause some, some disruption in the field also because we have some uh, proposal for an experimental test. So the, the theory that we have can be tested and it will be interesting to see what happens when we you know, when this test can be performed. And you can do it both with gravity, but also with electromagnetism, which is probably easier to do, um, considering, you know, what we can do experimentally at, at present. Man, a fantastic name for a theory would be ghost gravity. You could write a book on that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a great, it's, it's very, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, what yeah. is the physical interpretation then? Because ghosts come about from gauge fixing which is just something you do to make the math easier, akin to if you care about the derivative of a function only, then your regular function can have plus any constant. It'll just go away when you take the derivative. And you could set the constant to be whatever you like for whatever reasons, calculation reasons, but the constant goes away when you take the derivative. That's a great uh, point you're making there. Um, so the gauge uh, fix. So the gauge fixing is exactly what you said. So gauge is corresponds to if you like these different ways of, um, okay, let me, let me, let me make a step back and try to explain this a bit more clearly. Um, okay. Gauges are simply different ways of, of describing the electromagnetic field, even classically. So even classically you have different gauges. So, and as you said, it's, um, they, Mathematically, they correspond to um, switching to different variables for your Max- for Maxwell's equations. So Maxwell's equations can be written in terms of fields, electromagnetic fields, and they have some, classically speaking. But you can also change the variables to express the equations. And so instead of the fields, mm-hmm. you can use these things called potentials. Right. Uh, vector and scalar potentials. 
and the potentials are basically just a different, you know, mathematically speaking, they're just in variables. Um, however, there are many different changes of variables that you can make, and they're all equivalent. They all collapse to the same Maxwell's equations in terms of fields. Mm -hmm. And each of these different change of variables that may be useful for computational purposes is called a different gauge. So each of them, each of each gauge has their own have their own name. So there is like Coulomb gauge, Lorentz gauge, um, scalar gauge. So different names according to how they were discovered. Right. Now, classically speaking, this is irrelevant, meaning physically irrelevant in the sense that you can solve the equations with fields or with potentials in one gauge or another, and no one particularly cares about what you're doing. However, when you um, when you quantize the field, things become different because each mm -hmm, gauge. Mm -hmm corresponds to a different quantization procedure, if you like. And so the Lorentz gauge, which is the one that is um, local and explicitly Lorentz compatible, so it's explicitly compatible with uh, special relativity, leads to these four modes that, uh, four ghost, uh, sorry, four kinds of photons, which in jargon are called modes. And two of them are ghosts, because if you follow different quantizations, which start from different gauges, not the Lorentz gauge, but something in some other gauge, for example, Coulomb gauge, there are only two such um, modes or kinds of photons. And so uh, they, are, they are ghosts because um, they ultimately mm, are, are somehow usually thought of as being unphysical because they are not, um, they are not present in all gauges. Okay. So gauge fixing means you pick a particular gauge and um, that corresponds to some mathematical constraint being there. Usually this constraint is supposed to be irrelevant physically because, um, as I said, from the classical point of view, you only all you care about is just Maxwell's equations. And for Maxwell's equations, the potentials may not even exist. And, you know, they're just expressed in terms of fields. Now, the... The significance of what we discussed, which, by the way, I think was discussed by other people. Um, there's uh, Bernard Kay, who's a researcher at York that has also made similar comments recently. And in the past, other people have also made similar comments, just perhaps motivated by different reasoning. Um, so what we said is that um, in the quantum case, unlike in the classical case, there are some kinds of experiments that you can perform on the charges, which are the things that you interact with, um, that you use to, to somehow extract features out of the field. There are some experiments that you can perform on the, on the charges, if you think that they're quantum, which are not there in the classical case, obviously, because in classical physics, charges are also classical. And once you go along with this fact, and if you quantize the field and you want the whole description to be nicely local, etc., you are forced to see that the charges get, uh, in some situations, they simply get to depend on the degrees of freedom that are supposed to be ghosts in the Lorentz gauge. And by then measuring the charges in certain uh, situations that are possible now to measure because we have quantum metrology facilities that allow us to do that, you are indirectly accessing these ghosts. Yes. So in a sense, this uh, idea of gauge invariance, which is very important for classical electromagnetism, is also relevant for quantum electromagnetism or quantum electrodynamics, but um, it doesn't for, 
forbid us from, it doesn't um, impede the realization of these experiments that we discussed in, in the papers. And so it forces us to revisit the idea that the ghosts are not measurable. They are not measurable in the sense that they may not be measurable in the standard sense of being measurable. So in usually standard sense means to, to detect a click. So, you, you know, you have a photo, it's emitted and you detect it. This is one way of, being measure, of measuring features of the quantum uh, electromagnetic field. But there are other ways of probing it with quantum charges, which don't necessarily amount to detecting a photon of the ghost kind but they amount to some kind of detection. It's not a direct detection of these photons, yeah. but they are detecting some quantum features of these ghost modes. So in a way, we are, we are suggesting that the idea of measurability and what counts as measurable should be revisited in light of, these, uh, of the fact that we can actually perform these experiments. So would an analogy be like the Aronoff-Bohm effect, where before that, the electromagnetic potential was thought to be something that was just mathematical, a convenience? And then afterward, you still don't detect the electromagnetic field directly, but you see its effect on the phases of the electrons that go through a soliton or the outside of a soliton. And that, by the way, was revolutionary. So this paper with you and Vidral, is that correct? Yeah. Let me read its title. Interference in Quantum Field Theory Detecting Ghosts with Phases. And I'll put a link to that in the description. So this paper, is it suggesting something physical? We think that there's something physical about the electromagnetic field, with one of the major pieces of evidence historically being the Ehrenhoff-Bohm effect. So with your proposal to detect ghosts, are you saying that something else exists, like something that's choosing a gauge? Is there something else that, some other field that is actually in existence that we thought was a mathematical trick? Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yes, um, I think this is one way of, of thinking about what we do. Um, in fact, it's very related to the Arnold bomb effect um, in the following sense. We, we've also actually thought about the Arnold bomb effect and somehow this was part of the 
way in which we landed on this idea. I see, I see. Because even in the case of the Arnold-Bohm effect, uh, the interaction between the electron and the solenoid um, is solenoid. Is, um, That's the right mediated. word. It's a soliton by accident. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't sorry. Worry. No, I, I, I thought you meant solenoid. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- yeah, they're, they're very similar words, somehow different yes, things. Yes. But but yeah, in the, the solenoid being this thing that generates uh, an electro, a, a magnetic field, uh, only somehow ideally along a, a line. Yes. Um, and zero field elsewhere. And in the AB effect, you have this interesting fact that if you have an electron that goes exactly in the region where the field doesn't appear to be there, it can still be affected by the solenoid because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the solenoid is switched on, the electron has a different phase when it interferes compared to the case when the solenoid is off. So this shows that the electron is actually uh, picking up some mm-hmm, signal from mm-hmm. the solenoid, even though there is no direct field that's acting on it. Okay, the, 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 there the issue was how, does, how do the solenoid and the electron communicate even though classically speaking, if we describe the whole thing classically, uh, sorry, if you describe the um, field classically, it looks like there's no field at the point of the electron. And the the key to answer that is that even though classically that's true, if you consider the a quantum description of the field, you will notice that first, there is a back action of the electron on the solenoid. This is something that was already pointed out by, by Lev Weidman who anyway Mm -hmm. used still a a classical model for it. And second, more importantly, I think there's the fact that uh, even though the field is zero classically outside of the solenoid, a quantum field can never be zero in in the strict sense. And so so it can be zero, some aspects of the field can be zero, but there is still a quantum uh, feature of the field that's there. And some of the photons that are, so there are photons coming, in a sense, going back and forth from the solenoid to the electron and vice versa. And these photons happen to be also um, of the same kind as those that we referred to earlier. So I think the mechanism in all of these experiments is the same. There's a quantum field that somehow allows the one system to communicate with the other. And in some of these cases, the modes that are involved in this uh, back and forth communication, mm-hmm. if you want to call it like that, are ghost uh, photons. And um, and this is only clear, the fact that everything happens locally and nicely can only be um, accounted for, as far as we know, in these, uh, in a particular gauge. So somehow th- this, this, this set of results that we mentioned show us, um, on the one hand, as you said, that some gauges are better than others. The Lorentz gauge is, is, is more accurate in the description of what's going on because it's explicitly local and uh, also Lorentz covariant. Um, but also there's the fact that in order to have a complete description of what's going on, you have to quantize the field. So you have to have a quantum description of the field. Otherwise, as, was the, as, hap- as, as it happened in the case of Arnold and Bohm, if you stick to a completely classical description of the field and you want the, t- the charges and the solenoid um, to, sorry, the solenoid is classical, the field is classical, but the, the charge is, is quantum, you will incur into some issues of the description. And, and Arnold Baum somehow were concerned that this effect, that they, as they described it in the semi-classical theory, appeared non-local. 
And this can be cured by, by the fact that you quantize the field. So the lesson in the two, in, in this set of experiments is both that some gauges are more accurate than others, physically uh -huh. speaking, they're more realistic, they, they make more sense, so they tell a more coherent story because they're all explicitly local, etc. Lorentz gauge is one of them. The second lesson is that in order to have a local description, you always need to quantize everything in your systems. Otherwise, uh, if you insist on one of the systems being classical and the others not, you will incur some issues, uh, typically with locality. And finally, the third lesson is that we will need if we if we quantize the field and you look at some of these effects in specific gauges like the Lorentz gauge, and you consider all the experiments that you can perform on the charges, not just these input-output scattering amplitudes things that, that people usually look at in, in particle physics, for example, you will notice that it's um inevitable to, to have to modify your notion of measurability because even though you cannot detect, as far as we know, directly these um, ghost photons by, say, having a click in a photo detector, you can uh, indirectly detect their degrees of freedom by making measurements on the charges. Uh -huh. And that's an inescapable conclusion of how you analyze the, you know, of the analysis that you can make of the situation in the Lorentz gauge. Uh, and so this this requires us to just simply enlarge the the set of things that we can uh, call observables um, compared to the set you know compared to the the way we usually think of observables in 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 quantum field theory. So this to me sounds like a departure from constructor theory, but you see it as tied, or you see there being implications. Oh yeah, absolutely. I yeah, this, the, yeah, I think um, in my head, all of these things, so if you like, you know, if you, if you look at, I'm being very, um, now I'm sort of telling you somehow that, that uh, things to do with the way I think about stuff, so I don't know if it's uh -huh. really relevant, but the way, the way I think of this is really, you know, you, you can look at these papers, they look different from each other, but I think it's really me trying to understand um, how to apply this notion of observable that's more general that you have in constructive theory of information. So this paper I wrote with I David see. a while ago, where the, and anything that is copyable, any set of attributes that is copyable can be considered as an observable, whether or not it has some formal features that quantum theory requires. Such as? Such as being a Hermitian operator, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's my way of understanding how this concept of an observable can illuminate different parts of uh, quantum field theory or, or quantum theory more generally, especially those cases where we don't have an understanding of what of, of, of what we can really observe. So, so quantum field theory is an example of a case like that because, as I said, even though it's a quantum theory of fields, it has issues with various um, foundational aspects. And um, so... What is count, what counts as an observable there is very confused, uh, and and I think the foundations of quantum field theory also are not so clear about what is an observable and what isn't. Yeah, and so this is a way to, in a way, show the power of. Well, I don't know if it shows the power, but let's say it's it's a way of um, applying these constructor theory notions of observables that are more general than particular notions in quantum theory or quantum field theory to help us find new ways of probing fields compared to what we used to know before. This is a bit technical, but when I was looking up the categorical approach to constructor theory, I saw that what you want to do is you want to divide your space into what's impossible and what's possible. 
and your spaces then, or tasks, I believe tasks are the morphisms in a symmetric monoidal category. And I believe when you divide your space into what's possible, it becomes a subcategory. Do the impossible states also form a subcategory or no? Um, I actually don't know because the, the um, so I think the categorical, so category theory can be applied I'm not an expert at all, but I think it can be applied to a number of things. Uh, in fact, it's so flexible, it can be applied to a very, very broad set of theories in a way, right? And and um, I, I'm not sure about the specific answer to this question. I think what is promising there, and I was very happy that um, some people who are interested in category theory actually decided to do this work, is that it could be that by casting constructor theory in these terms that are, if you like, more modern from the mathematical point of view as well, uh, compared to set theory, which was what yeah. we are using to express our results so far. Um, I think there's a chance that some of the theorems we have um, could be condensed in, in a very elegant short proof. And as well, you could also see unifications between things that we think may be distant and, and not related. So I'm, I'm really hoping that that continues and that uh, perhaps more, mm-hmm. um, more more people may come along and have more results uh, in, in, those, in, in that kind of direction. Uh, but as far as your question, I'm not so sure. The only thing is that uh, if I can, I mean, if I, if I sort of uh, understand correctly what you were saying, what allows you to conclude that is the fact that in constructive theory we have this principle that's called the composition law that says that when you compose two um, possible tasks you still should obtain a possible task Mm -hmm. Um, whereas this isn't true for impossible tasks oh okay so then it wouldn't form a subcategory yeah they wouldn't right so so the idea is that somehow this composition law only holds for possible tasks and um, it doesn't for impossible tasks. So, in fact, you can have two impossible tasks that compose together give you a possible task. A typical example is the... So, imagine again the task of high of, of um, first um, raising the energy of a system mm-hmm. and then lowering by... And then the second task is lowering the energy by the same amount. You can compose the two tasks joint right so they're both impossible right as what we said earlier oh uh, yes yes by themselves but if you compose them you have basically have the task of the identity right so you stay in the same place so you don't you go you know one task goes up the other mm-hmm. goes down by the same amount it's basically your, the task the resulting composition gives you the task of staying in the same place which is a possible task by by somehow axiomatic uh, but by by assumption so that's an that's an example of two impossible tasks giving you a possible task. Uh, so I'm guessing because there isn't this closure property, presumably the answer to your question is is that the impossible tasks should not have that property. Um, but I, as I said, I'm I'm not I'm not sure. sure. And the principle of locality that's super important to constructor theory. It's that different than locality in the regular physics sense. No, I, I think it's, um, so, th- okay, locality is a very subtle concept and has lots of different meanings in physics. Uh, people often are, depend, de- well, they, they mean different things. But there is one, one so the, the principle of locality, the way that 
we understand in this the principle of Einsteinian locality, if you like, sometimes called like that, which uh, says that there shouldn't be any action at a distance. Uh, so in other words, if you have a way to describe your, you know, you have a system that's made of subsystems um, and you have a transformation that only involves one of these subsystems, it should only be able to change the subsystem in question and not the others. Um, and and this applies both to the directly observable things on the other systems and those that are not directly locally observable. And uh, this is a property that is true for quantum theory, non-relativistic quantum theory, for quantum field theory, is true for general relativity, and is true for um, some forms of um, of I would say, well, depends what you're saying, but I think somehow this is true for all the theories that we think are reasonable. Um, even in quant even non-relativistic quantum field theory that somehow is not necessarily yes. the final correct theory because it's not relativistic. Now, this is different from the concept of locality that's sometimes referred to as Bell locality, which is a notion that's very important in quantum foundations because it's the property that a theory can be described by a local hidden variable model that uses real valued stochastic theories. And uh, John Bell had this uh, very interesting result, which was a, mathem it's a mathematical theorem that says that um, if uh, you violate with some statistics certain inequalities, which are called Bell inequalities, you can conclude that your statistics are coming from a theory that is not Bell local, so it cannot be uh -huh. reduced to a local hidden variable model. And quantum theory is not Bell local, so it's not describable as a local hidden variable theory that uses real valued stochastic theories. So in that sense, um, it's often confused. It's often said that quantum theory is non-local, but what one means there is Bell non-local. So it's the fact that violates mm. Bell quantum systems can violate Bell inequalities. Uh, but the locality we're talking about is really more basic or fundamental. So it's to do with the fact that there is no action at a distance. And even quantum systems that can that are entangled, that violate Bell inequalities, do not allow you to action, you know, to, to perform this action at a distance. And so that's th that's the feature that constructor theory cares about. And I think this theory, this locality is really built in, in the foundations of the theory. It's a very important result. Sorry, it's a very important axiom, if you like, or principle. And it's also very important in the context of these experiments that I mentioned earlier, the ones to test quantum gravity and also the um, electromagnetic um, discussion we had earlier with the ghosts and also the gravity version of, the, of those results. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a very important principle. Chiara, what's a no design law? A quote unquote no design law? Uh, a no design law is a law that is very important for uh, understanding this is in the origin of life problem type frame of you know frame of mind. So we're thinking in that camp. Um, so the problem of uh, biology is to one of the problems of evolutionary biology is to explain how uh, living systems can have come about without um, there being a designer. So typically. I think you know Darwin was battling with the idea that somehow uh, there was a, a belief that you 
had to appeal to a creation uh, sort of, you know, to, to God being there, yeah. to design, to a designer, to create uh, entities that are highly complex out of simple beginnings. And uh, so if you don't want to go that way because you don't want to make that step to believe in, in such an entity, you're in luck because uh, Darwin and all the great biologists who came after him uh, and, and uh, kind of um, refined his idea showed us that it's possible to have a there's a that's a kind of uh, it's possible to have a um um a complex entity to come out of simple beginnings simple initial conditions that don't include complexity simply by waiting for long enough and allowing for these um natural selection um and um basically mutations that are not specific to what you want to get in the end. So you need um, you need um, the mechanism of natural selection to be there and you need the possibility of th there being things that can replicate, which you can call genes in a broad sense, a bit sure, like what, sure. uh, you know, with, with the Dawkins terminology. Um, so they're not just genetic, they're pieces of, uh, you know, strings of information that can uh, replicate in a stable manner, and then you need um, the possibility of having errors in, in this replication that introduce variations that can then be selected by, by the natural selection occurring in a given environment. Now, this, this concept is very, uh, this, this description is usually in biology is given at a high level, so no one really thinks of, well, about the laws of physics. Um, we, you know, people just think, okay, the laws of physics are in the background, we don't care in biology, that's fine. But somehow when you are trying to imagine a way to reproduce this thing in a laboratory or in a simulator or in a computer or in some sort of dynamical system, you have to have a very good understanding of what dynamical interactions you are happy to allow in your simulator to mimic the fact that like in physics, these uh, laws, these dynamical interactions, don't have the design of the life that you want to emerge out of your process of evolution. Mm -hmm. And this is a very tricky concept. Uh, it's tricky even in, in physics itself, and in simulation is even more tricky. But the point of no design laws, the definition of it is really to... Uh, highlight the importance of the fact that when you're running an argument like Darwin's, you want to make sure that you haven't snuck in some assumptions about the laws that are, you know, that govern, govern the, the interaction between microscopic entities uh, in your biological system, which ultimately contain the design of the living system that you create at the end of the natural selection process. So a no design law is a law that isn't specifically designed or crafted to bring about a specific complex entity or a set of specific complex entities. And we know that the laws of physics says we believe, we, we, the, the laws of physics we know kind of govern the universe. Our current guesses are no design laws in this way because they don't specifically contain symmetries that are specially suited for the emergence of a specific form of life. And that's very important to know because um, 
that gives strength to uh, Darwin's argument, if you like. And so, if you are concerned with uh, this, this, um, you know, the 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 possibility that there could be a skeptic that might not believe in Darwin's explanation, it's good to remind ourselves that the laws of physics that Darwin's presupposes for his own reasoning and uh, neo-Darwinism in general presupposes are not his own laws. So nothing is assumed um, of the dynamical interactions that are used in the in the sort of Darwin's um, theory of, of evolution. And when you then try to, uh, if you if you're thinking of of a way to um, to reproduce this thing in a, in a laboratory, so you think of having or in a computer, it's very important that when you you know if you if you start with simple beginnings and you get complex entities at the end in your simulation, you want to have a criterion and a test or a check, a way to check that the dynamical interactions that you use in order to show this progression do not already contain the design of what you're getting at the end. Okay. So, you know, you start with something simple and out comes something like an elephant, let's say in a simulation, um, in a computer, you want to make sure that the computer doesn't have some uh, rules of interaction between elementary uh, cells that somehow contains the design of this entity that's that comes at the end. So you don't want to assume what you're trying to prove. That's right. You don't want there to be circularity. I see. Yeah, that's right. So if you were to assume that, then you would be circular because it would be like saying, okay, well, I gave you an elephant, but actually I snuck in the program, you know, the design of it. So that's not very surprising. What's surprising and what's cool in, in what happened in the biosphere on Earth and perhaps elsewhere in the universe, we don't know, is that as far as we can tell, um, because given that the laws are not designed specifically for life, life came about and we have lots of complexity now going around uh, the Earth. And that's that's very interesting. And somehow that's important to... So the no-design concept is very important, not just in the foundations of theoretical biology, but also in the context of the emulation of, of this process which you want to do it in the lab. Okay, great, great, great. Now that we've talked about design law or no-design law, what is superinformation? So uh, superinformation is a... Um, Particular kind of so. In fact, I should talk about superinformation media. That's that's the thing. So uh, it's it's a generalization of the concept of quantum systems. So it's in the context of the constructive theory of information, and uh, the superinformation media are physical systems that obey the laws of constructive theory and have extra properties compared to physical systems like a bit that can only contain classical information. Mm-hmm. And these extra properties are um, have to do with the fact that not all of the states are copyable, just like quantum systems. And in our paper with David, we proved that these uh, systems, these superinformation media, have all the qualitative properties of quantum systems. So they are, if you think of, if you like, you can think of the theories that describe these superinformation media as a generalization of quantum theory. Um, and a superinformation medium could be a, th- a medium, a physical system that can perform quantum computation, but may not uh, obey fully quantum theory. And so they are they are like post-quantum, mm, their systems can be described by post-quantum theories that obey principles like locality and the interoperability of information. So all of these principles of constructive theory. And these superinformation media are very useful. The theory of these things is very useful in the context that I mentioned earlier, where you have a quantum system interacting with something that, like gravity, that may or may not be quantum, because a quantum theory of gravity may describe 
objects like super information media, exactly. I see, I see. Does constructor theory have anything to say about dark energy or dark matter? Okay, this is very speculative. I think we, we've we remarked a number of times, um, this is, like as I said, at the speculative level, that um, it, so these systems are things that may or may not obey quantum theory as we know it, and also uh, may require some upgrade of the theories that we currently have in general, uh, even even like uh, even at the kind of mathematical level. Um, and because of that, I think it's very useful to apply to them this theory of super information media and or the constructive theory of information more generally, because they may still obey the principles of information and also the principles of information theory that we laid out in our mm-hmm. paper put constraints on them. So for example, the principle of interoperability of information, which says that um, any system that can contain information should also be able to interact with another system that can likewise contain information. And you should be able to set up some interactions between them that allow for copying various states. I think this is a thing that can be, so this principle could be applied to um, dark matter, for example, and it may turn out that this principle rules out some of the theories about dark matter simply because they they have um, they they somehow violate the principle and they say that some copy like operations between the dark sector and the non dark sector are impossible. So in a sense, I think constructively, you can say a lot about that, and and maybe this is something for future application. But it's definitely something that is on the you know we, something that we may at some point address. Mm-hmm. Now, given that you're working on what is like a theory of everything, or maybe it's a framework for a toe rather than a toe. But regardless, do you believe a toe to be possible? There are two respects in which I mean that. Like, does it exist? So that's one question. And then even if it exists, is it knowable to us? Uh, so I think, um, I don't think a constructive theory is a theory of everything. Um, for the reason that, as I said, uh, it has the ambition to express, so it's, as I said, it, it has a principle, it has a number of principles that um, can express some aspects of physics, ideally all of them, uh, but also it um, it may not have the features of a dynamical theory, so, so it may not actually um, directly respond to the standard paradigm of the theory of everything. Um, mm. I think a theory of everything perhaps is not the most fruitful way of thinking about stuff in the sense that it is my philosophical position that um, we, you know, in in any theory, no matter how complete it looks, uh, we may be able to find problems. And so these problems will lead to something else. And so the way I think about stuff is more like, I like to think of there being different levels of explanations. Maybe there are infinitely many, and uh, we just keep going from one to another by understanding things more and more. Uh, so in that sense, I I like this more open-ended way of thinking about science, physics specifically, where we, we just keep digging, and sometimes when we dig deeper, we find a different level of explanation that brings some more unification of, along. Uh, and we go from one level to another. 
and I think the reason ultimately, so there isn't really um, a very strong, I, I think it's very difficult to convince someone who thinks otherwise that this is the case. But I think I can say that the reason why I like this view is that um, ultimately it's very hopeful. I think it gives you really, as a physicist or as a scientist, it gives you the idea that there'll always be something to work on. And I think that's a fun thing to to entertain in your head. Uh -huh. um, and in a sense, the theory of everything somehow suggests this sense of closure that you might achieve at some point. Uh, and um, I think um, given that we can never know whether what we know is true, um, it seems to me to clash with this epistemological stance that I have, that, that I think it's it's impossible to actually know whether what you know is really true. All you can hope for is somehow to be able to find problems in what you know and, and somehow change your view accordingly. Uh, so in, in a way, you know, I think I I kind of like this this stance on things. I think this is very uh, Popperian, if you like, uh, and I sort of subscribe to that. I, I really like this approach. And it's very scientific. I think that's how scientists behave more or less, even though when they, you know, even though sometimes they don't acknowledge that. But it seems to me this is a kind of very natural way of thinking of things. What would be the difference between information and knowledge? So knowledge is a kind of information that has extra properties. So information is really some set of states that can be copied uh, to arbitrary high accuracy, whereas knowledge is this extra uh, has this extra feature of being information, so a set of states that can be copied, which also are capable of causing transformations to occur on physical systems and to stay embodied in these systems. Mm, okay. um, so it's kind of it's got this resilient feature, the fact that it can last in a given physical support, as opposed to standard information which may or may not have this feature uh, so in a sense knowledge is a kind of constructor for it's a information that's also a constructor broadly speaking is it possible for there to be information that isn't physically realizable like that isn't instantiated in something physically no uh, I mean that's at least the way we think about stuff um, that's that's very much in line with with uh, I think there's a long tradition of People, physicists have realized this. I think Charlie Bennett being one of them. Um, and I think the, you know, most of the founding fathers of quantum information had this bias of thinking that computers are physical entities, they run on physical laws, and therefore they have properties that are, you know, they are matter for physics. And David, uh, somehow the idea of a quantum Turing machine came exactly from this conviction. Um, and I think the the idea of information as being an abstract entity that's not embodied in physical systems is really something that um, somehow doesn't belong to the, to the sort of philosophical viewpoint that we are that we are following. Um, and ultimately, the constructed theory of information precisely says that. So it gives you a handle on information that's physical. It says that it's a set of states that can be copied. Um, and so that's, you know, when you talk about the set of states of a physical system, indirectly you're saying that everything that can, con you know, information is, yeah. is actually okay. physical. Okay, now, Chiara, before we go, I just want to know what's one mistake, what's the best mistake that you've made that has turned out well? Um, well, I think 
I think I've made lots of mistakes, but um, perhaps the the um, okay. I think that the one that comes to mind uh, now is this fact that I. Um, so I think I I didn't know I I I thought for a long time that. I wouldn't be interested in necessarily in, in in science or physics. So I think my love for physics was a uh, was uh, came in late in my in my life. So late later, let's say than than say teenage years, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think I um, initially thought I would be a writer. So around about ten or something, I had this idea that I would love being a writer, and I loved languages. I loved um, literature poems, um, everything that had to do with language just fascinated me. And so I ended up um, sort of working a lot on on these things. And my own choice in school in back in Italy, I think, where you can choose between, it's a bit different from the Anglosphere, but I think you have a choice between two kinds of um, um, sort of main parts. And one of them is more science-inspired, the other one is more classics and literature-inspired. So I chose that. And okay, you could think of that as a mistake in a sense that later on I realized actually I really did want to study science. So that, that happened at the end of the of the of the five years of secondary school. But um so on the one hand, this meant that I managed to actually um just satisfy this love for 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 literature and, and uh-huh. classics and, and languages. And then it also meant that when I switched to science. At the university, when I switched to to physics, I actually fell in love in the second second time, in a sense, and that was very exciting. So, unlike maybe my other colleagues that somehow had read mostly, uh, you know, they already had had this mm-hmm. secondary school mostly in, within science, so they had been exposed more to say physics and and calculus, etc. I really just found it then when I was eighteen, and. I just I just found that it was mind blowing and very beautiful and somehow the fact that I had all of this baggage from the classics side of things made it even more exciting for me to see these things uh, because I it's like seeing them with with different eyes and I so in a sense that was maybe you could classify it as a sort of mistake initially uh, maybe I could have. Um, immediately started on the path of, of yeah. physics already back in the teenage years. But I didn't, and I'm very happy that I didn't because I somehow it's really nice to be able to see maybe similarities also between different, you know, between humanities and science and physics. Uh, and the yeah, way I think yeah. physics is really a storytelling. So I, I ultimately satisfied my life for like my, my love for storytelling, which is actually what I really loved as a, as a child, uh, by ending up in this field that is really about telling stories about the universe. And it's the most way, it's the most accurate, most complete way of telling stories because it really has, you know, you have reality as a checkpoint and you have to sort of make stories that are compelling and clear and precise. And and that's just what makes me fascinated about physics itself. Yeah, an aspect of your book, to bring this back, that I enjoyed is that, and again, the book is The Science of Ken and Kant, and it's on screen, it's in the description, is that you get the sense of a love of writing. Something I'm curious about is many scientists see their exposition, they're explaining to the audience as some necessary evil they have to do at the end in order to get (laughs) grants, because they need to drum up some fervor in the public sphere. But they don't see it as something that they want to do. They like to do the research and speak technically. 
When you were writing your book, did you find that the writing actually helped you develop your more technical ideas? Ah, absolutely. I think so. I, I, um, I do find it challenging. So in a sense, maybe, you know, if I followed my least resistance path, I would also sort of tend to just do my own, you know, um, technique, technical bits of mm-hmm. writing and, and research. But the the task of explaining it to someone who doesn't maybe have the same mathematical tools and uh, doesn't me- maybe even have an interest in, in this stuff and making it interesting to them is a very um, humbling and at the same time exciting uh, enterprise. And I, I think I really enjoyed it because it clarified in my head also my own understanding of things. So... It didn't perhaps lead to new discoveries in in the sense, in the strict sense, but I think it's true. I agree with, um, I think many physicists have said this before, uh, that somehow if you if you if you only know a formula and maybe you understand the mathematics, but you can't explain it in simple terms, it means that something is escaping you and you don't understand it yourself. So somehow trying to explain it to someone in simple terms is really a great exercise for everyone to to do. Data for teaching. I think teaching is a similar thing. It's a, it's a very nice activity because it allows you to to really try to sort of break down your understanding of of something very compl- complex into simple uh, steps that you can then explain to people who haven't seen this before. So yeah, definitely, I, I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed writing anyway. So because that's, as I said, is is part of my passions. And my last question, I know you got to get going. Where do you get your best ideas? When and where do you get your best ideas? Oh, that's very, uh, it varies. Um, I think it's uh, really like, it's really true that you have to be, it's it's really a creative act. I think it's uh, something that this probably is true for everyone who's doing some creative work. You have to be uh, relaxed. Uh, you have to be free of worries if possible. So somehow you have to be able to bring yourself to a subspace where you're not concerned about, you know, daily problems. Uh, uh-huh. And you have to be, at least as far as I'm concerned, you have to feel free to explore things uh, without constraints. So I was very lucky in my PhD or DPhil because all my supervisors, I mean, David was a collaborator. He's great at this, but I think also Arthur Eckert, who was my supervisor at the time, they are masters of this uh, freedom-seeking um, attitude. So I think I was really inspired to be just. So I was let, let you know, left on my own and um, mm-hmm. to, to, to just think. And I think that's the best state you can be in. So you're not forced by someone to say, "Okay, you have to mm-hmm. work on this problem or this other problem." You have to be free to let your mind roam um, and 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 uh, explore things like. You are, you know, um, as Newton used to say, right, that you're on a seashore and you're sort of looking at pebbles and um, you're like a child playing with things. You have to be in this fun-seeking, free state to have your best ideas. That's that's as far as I can tell. And this is, as I said, a constant also, actually, my mentor, Mario Rosetti, who was the person, by the way, who, who introduced me to quantum information back in my master's in Torino. I think all of them, all of my mentors had this feature and they all said that their own mentors were like that. So I think somehow it must be a constant. It's it's true of, uh, I, I would say it's true of most creative activities that you need to be in that state to be inspired 
And you have to be able to sit quietly somewhere to be inspired. So it could be that you are on a journey. So sometimes I enjoy thinking when I'm traveling. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you're in a super quiet place, but somehow you're tranquil. And and so, you know, you're in your own zone and then you can think. Um, and and so the, the place can vary. It could be on a walk. It could be on a swim. It could be while I'm traveling uh, or I'm sitting at the desk. But there has to be a moment where you're sitting there in this space and waiting for inspiration. And sometimes it doesn't come. You just have to be patient and wait for it. But when it comes, then it's really nice to follow it. And and yeah, it's it's really very much like an artist. That's that's I think the way I work and presumably all all my colleagues also do. You mentioned you're waiting for the inspiration or just the inspiration occurs to you. Like are you sitting here like, come on, inspiration, come on. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think sometimes you have to be patient and wait. It's a bit like when you're sitting to, you know, if you're in out outside walking and you want to see some rare animal in the wood, mm-hmm. you just have to be patient. Okay. But you've got to go there, and I think that's the ta- that's that's the, maybe the hard thing to do. You have to cultivate these things, especially if you're not. You know, there are lots of things that go in the way. I think of researchers these days, not just daily problems with uh, you know everyday life, but I think also you know, grant applications, as you said, and um, admin yeah. duties, et cetera. They're all enemies of creativity. I think they are not <laughs> optimizing the research-oriented ideas. So I think you really have to find some way to guard your time and and uh, say also no to things and find, mm-hmm. you know, some some free time to to wait for inspiration. And you've got to be somewhere for it, for it to visit. Um so in that sense, yeah, I think I very much think of me myself as sort of being one of those explorers that are waiting for, you know, mm-hmm. to, to to see a rare animal in the forest. Um, I think that's how, how I think of myself. Thank you, Kiara. Thank you for spending so thank much you. time with me. And the audience thanks you. Yeah, it was great. Great uh, being here. And thank you very much for the questions and for, for listening. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.